Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today we're talking all things media, mainstream, legacy, and social media with Greg Kelly of Newsmax, of WABC, and yes, of Twitter. If you know, you know. This is episode 23. From the media's focus on politics over policy, to whether the industry is worth fixing and saving at all, to Greg Kelly's incredible Twitter presence that generally drives the media crazy, we start with the state of the press seven months into Biden's administration. Thanks so much for doing this. Uh, We are now about seven months into the Biden presidency, and it's been fascinating for me to kind of watch the media scramble to try to find a a new story after after four years of of pretty singular story across the board in the media. Um, I think we've seen a bit of a focus on January 6th, which I want to talk about. Uh, I know you've been busy covering uh, and tweeting about more on on tweeting later as well. But I want to ask you just kind of big picture. How do you assess the media so far during these first seven months of the Biden presidency? Steve, uh, I've never been impressed with uh, media coverage of pretty much anything. Uh, When I was growing up, I was in a law enforcement family. Uh, My father wasn't a police commissioner or anything like that. Uh, He was a sergeant when I was born. But Through him and through some other people in my family and friends, I was on the inside of an unusually kind of high number of stories, things that were written about that I knew about firsthand. And I was always struck with how wrong uh, the media were in capturing what I knew to have taken place. Um, This, anybody who's been on the inside of anything, anything newsworthy uh, will agree generally, that when something is written about from the outside, uh, whether it's uh, print or uh, uh, television or anything, how they just don't get it right. Now, what we've been seeing, though, since um, is very strange. I I don't understand, back to your question really about Biden, um, why they are so resistant to uh, scrutinizing him the way they scrutinize Trump. Right. Uh, This is a this is a very flawed man running a really screwed up administration. Uh, this should be a feast. And obviously their numbers are down. So I, I, I genuinely am stumped as to why they are not tougher on him. I have, I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah. And it, it's, it, it's interesting because like on, on one level, you could say it's, it's this pendulum swing going from the Obama years to the Trump years and now back to the Biden years. And it's, it, it, it's, you can assign it as politics. But I think one of the things that we've seen is, you know, the media is a business, you know, and I don't think anyone would, would, you know, disagree with that. And so We've seen the, the the ratings just completely crater in the in the post-Trump era um, across the board in a lot of ways in the CNNs and the MSNBCs, and we've seen stories about the Atlantic and the New York Times even you know the the numbers kind of going back to earth and and losing um, you know kind of as a business model, and, and it's like. I wonder why they don't just start to moderate what they're doing based on on just from a purely financial point of view. You would think that's enough of an incentive. Um, you would think. Now, everybody has bosses, and you're familiar with the corporate media. Is this somehow mandated? Not yeah. formally, of course, but this is just widely understood that we're going to give the new team a chance. Um, or are they just, were they just that um, opposed to Trump on a primal level that they want to give him a chance? I don't know. There's plenty of incentive to uh, do, I hate to say good journalism, but to uh, to investigate, to pursue, uh, and like, why not? At least for the entertainment value of it all. Right, right. Um, uh, so it is a business, you're right. And I, 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 it's funny, I don't talk to journalists the way I used to. We all kind of don't. I mean, you might trade messages, uh, but we don't gather anymore, partly because of COVID. And partly because, well, that was just kind of not even being done before COVID. We're all in our little silos. We don't hang out in the journalist clubhouse anymore. <laughs> there really wasn't ever one. Uh, there's a lot of competition out there. I mean, uh, so 
And I don't know. Yeah. No, I think you're right, though. There was a lot. It, it has changed. And certainly, I think you can probably point to the the election of Donald Trump as part of that. I mean, I remember I, I've been outside of New York now for about eight years um, living in Texas. But before that, I was, uh, you know, very much part of the media scene in New York. And and, you know, I'd go to the the parties and people would, you know, there, there was kind of a the, the professional and the personal side. And it wasn't like everyone was best friends behind the scenes, but there was a lot more camaraderie. Um, than I would say there is now. And I think there's pros and cons to that, uh, that, that sort of comfiness. Uh, but, but at the same time, you know, it, it, it has changed in a very real way. It seems like. Yeah. You know, can I tell you something when I, um, when I was first covering city hall at New York one, there was that camaraderie. We would all be in the blue room together, waiting and talking a little bit, but back then I think journalists overall, uh, were more thoughtful because they had time to be, you know, when I went in 2001 downtown to Lower Manhattan to cover something that Giuliani was doing before 9-11, um, I, all I had really to do was think about the story. I had already read the newspapers. I could not bring my phone with me, or I could, but it only made phone calls. Uh, <laughs> now we're all kind of wondering and, and watching and, and, and scrutinizing what's going on in the White House, what's going on in Buenos Aires, what's going on with... Uh, uh, so movie star, you know, we're just all terribly distracted. And so many of us are looking at ourselves in the in the mirror, Instagram, that uh, a lot less thought is happening about the craft, you know, what it, what the product that we're supposed to be putting out. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, it's funny. I, I saw a tweet. Uh, recently from a new media startup called Puck News, um, which I think is like they're trying to do these newsletters and they're hiring some interesting people. And they wrote, journalists were the original influencers. And I was like, I'm not sure that's true. Uh, you know, I, and if it is, I, I don't know if that's a, be- a great model to be trying to build around is like, oh yeah, we're, we're going to eat like the influencer model, as you talk about, which has kind of seen the rise of social media uh, behind that. I'm not sure if, if the journalism job was really about like accruing, you know, building your like brand in a way that you're now seen as, you know, you've got your your followers and your fans. And, and I, there's something that seems a little bit off about that to me. Totally off, totally off. And it's interesting, though, journalists are the original influencers. You know, there is something to that, though, in that so many people went into journalism to make the world a better place. If you ask them, they'll say that often. They'll say two things. I'm passionate about telling stories or I want to make the world a better place. Both are problematic, both both motivations. Um, making the world a better place suggests that you're biased already. Maybe the world is fine. Maybe, <laughs> maybe change is not actually needed here as you're covering NYCHA or you're covering HUD or whatever. You're going in with the idea that you know better this must be screwed up. I'm going to write something and I'm going to have power that's going to give me influence. So many people approach the world that way. I went into journalism really because I am curious. I am a bit of a voyeur. I like to watch things. I like to, you know, I like to observe. It's a form of escapism. Yeah. But now everyone kind of wants to have an impact. But what about just witnessing things? And then the idea of telling a story, which Sounds great as well. And I actually became passionate about telling stories in a different way for a different reason. But if you're about telling stories, then you have to have a good guy and a bad guy and a narrative. And that's a problem as well. You know, sometimes stuff just happens. And to tie it all together in narrative form, you're going to take some shortcuts. You're going to ignore what disturbs your narrative. And focus on what helps your narrative. It's a it, it's a classic dilemma that no one ever really talks about. Yeah, and it's it, you know you talk about like I, I agree. I mean ob- observation and being curious, but then it's you know so much of it now starts from the end of the story and then builds backwards essentially. Um, and it kind of leads me to, to January sixth because I think you know you've been been covering this, and I think you know you obviously you were as you mentioned um a, a, you know a family that that has you know, law enforcement in it. Your father was uh, the head of the NYPD, Ray Kelly. Um, you know you yourself were in the military, and you look at these these police officers now who have become influencers in their own right. Um, uh, you know, particularly, you know, a couple of them, you know, Harry Dunn and Michael Fanone, who are become household names. If you've watched CNN or other media outlets, um, on essentially media tours and not to diminish 
necessarily what they've what they went through uh, on on that day with the riot at the Capitol. Um, but but I wonder if you can sort of step back and assess, like, what is happening here? Why is this the dominant story of the media now seven months after it happened? And what what about these c- cops have become such sort of avatars for what the media wants out there? Well, first, those guys are slipping away really quick. They are. I, and I think they're feeling it. If you read the Time Magazine story about uh, Michael Fanone uh, and household name, well, there's no almost no such thing as a household name anymore. Uh, you know, it just everything evaporates so quickly. And I remember live tweeting about this event and actually trying to uh, enlist some of my military friends. Can you believe this? And they didn't know what I was talking about. And these are pretty politically minded individuals. But, you know, very few people were sitting around on a Tuesday morning watching cable news. Yeah. And that's where it was. And so they're not. They're not as big as it seems to us. Now, when you go back to, say, the 80s and Oliver North, you know, Oliver North truly captivated the entire country. We were all watching. Fewer choices. Uh, it just everybody's to this day almost, depending upon your age. But at least for 20 years after, knew who Oliver North was. Um, so I feel bad for these guys, these cops who are being used. And uh, uh, they're letting themselves be used as well. Our culture now is like you too can be famous and you too will be famous. And there's a chance that you will be famous for not 15 minutes, but for 30 seconds. But overall, on January 6th, I'll just say this. There are many of us who have genuine concerns about the fairness of the last election. And they are using January 6th to not only neutralize those concerns, but almost illegalize those concerns. Because if you raise those concerns, their logic, their false logic, and I think that it's very sinister in their motivations here, but if you raise concerns about the fairness of January of, uh, of November 2020 and the lead up to it, those concerns can lead to a riot, can lead to death and destruction. Therefore, you must be quiet about those concerns. So that's, that's what's driving, and that's why January 6th still looms so large, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about curiosity. I, I, as, as much coverage as January 6th gets, there are still so many questions that the media, despite their coverage, doesn't really spend a lot of time looking into, um, you know, things like, uh, who planted, you know, pipe bombs outside the RNC and the DNC. And, and why do we still know nothing about that? And, uh, you know, obviously there's some major security concerns as well. I, it's, it feels like a, in a way that there's a, an effort to find anything that can let the CNNs of the world say Trump over and over again. And this seems like the most obvious way to do that, uh, maybe. Yes. And, you know, you mentioned, and I'm, I'm glad you did. You said the RNC and the DNC with those pipe bombs yeah. planted. Now, Lester Holt in the aftermath of January 6th, I, 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 I was shocked that he omitted the RNC. The fact that a pipe bomb was planted at the RNC uh, disrupts the narrative yeah. that we were talking about. And in the headline of his broadcast, you know, we summarizes all the stories they're going to do. He said the DNC and other locations. <laughs> um, and we, it's, 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 it's very much the, the narrative is, um, yeah, Trump supporters bad. Trump supporters led to January 6th. Trump supporters, this is an elaborate cancellation attempt, uh, I believe. It's uh, it's interesting. You mentioned November, and I want to I want to talk about that a little bit because there there was a moment there. Um, and, and actually, you know, you joined Newsmax last year, uh, in in early 2020, I believe. Um, and I think is soon after I left my job in in uh, August of of last year, I was on your show. I was glad to be one of the first uh, TV appearances I did there, and appreciated that opportunity. And I, I will say, you know, there was a moment after the election, um, where you know, Newsmax was essentially overtaking Fox News in totality and and your show in particular, um, still doing really well uh, in the ratings. And, and I think, you know, culturally uh, leveled off a bit. But I, I wonder what, you, you know, thinking back to that and, and even in the months since, what that shows about our media environment, but particularly kind of the, the right leaning media landscape that we're in right now. Well, a couple of things. Uh, our ratings are actually coming back. We're pushing a half million right now. Now, a year ago, when I started, we were at like 20,000. Uh, I'm very proud of the show. We're doing very innovative, interesting programming. 
and yes, we overtook for a brief time Fox News. Now, Fox News obviously is a very big company, uh, billions upon billions upon billions of dollars. Right. Um, and incredibly well established. I mean, I know where Fox News is on my cable system right now. I work at Newsmax. I don't know where to find Newsmax on my own cable <laughs> situation. I mean, that's that's a problem that we're up against. And I believe, and some others believe, that Fox has done things uh, behind the scenes to make our lives a bit more difficult in terms of distribution and where we can be seen and not seen and, and things of that nature. And they certainly have the uh, bandwidth and the uh, resources to make our lives difficult. Uh, having said that, I think we are thriving and we're in a really good place and we continue to uh, march on. Uh, regarding, uh, look, here's something else. Consider this, and no one ever talks about it. Everybody kind of knows what's going on. There are people out there who are on television who write, uh, and they say, well, we're informing the American people. We are giving them information. Uh, the American people kind of get it almost on their own. There's this digital osmosis that happens. Um, everybody has an idea what's happening. Opinion at night is now very, very, it's traditionally, it has been opinion, but I think it's more, I guess I, I'm owning it more than ever before. Yeah. I, I, the idea that I was going to tell you something that happened um, at nine o'clock in the morning in another city, as I sit in New York City on Third Avenue, and I'm going to tell you what happened. I mean, you already know what happened, and I can summarize in eight seconds. Okay, now what? What does it mean? What is the perspective? Let's give it some context. That's where the value comes in. Is the legacy establishment media worth fixing and saving? You were at Fox News um, earlier in your career and then at Fox in New York. Um, but so much has changed in, in the landscape. Not, And again, it's changed in the country in some ways because I think that, that there's been a fracturing uh, in a lot of ways of both political parties of, uh, you know, there people are more able to like find very specific niches or very specific things that, that fit exactly what they're interested in. Um, but I also just think that in the media landscape, like it's it, the idea that, that people want to go to a giant, you know, <laughs> mega corporation to tell them things seems less and less interesting, I think. Less and less interesting. And, uh, you know, people bemoan the fracturing, though as you know, and uh, they they think that it's bad for the country. And, uh, oh, if we could only have the good old days. Walter Cronkite, who played it so straight, just <laughs> told us, told it like it is or like it was or whatever his catchphrase. Well, that's not true. Uh, Walter Cronkite was a partisan and delivered the news in a very skewed, biased way. Not too long ago, I had to review, I forget why, but I, uh, I watched basically four hours of CBS's coverage of the Ronald Reagan inauguration in 1981. Hmm. And it was handled like it was a funeral. Uh, you could never talk like this, the way they were talking back then. Really? And there's this one, no, it was so negative about Reagan. It was incredible. And there's this one moment. I can't remember if it was during the inaugural parade. I think actually it was right after he took the oath. So after Reagan takes the oath, there's that pause. I think there's a 21-gun salute. It's about two minutes before uh, he actually starts the inaugural address. The new president is president and starts his speech. And in that interim, uh, Cronkite like mentioned three or four things. Well, there he is, our new president, twice married, veteran of uh, World War II, stateside service, major slam, by the way, uh, <laughs> former actor, union president, and now the 40th president of the United States. Now, a couple of things. Actually, back then, that was considered valuable that that um, Walter Cronkite could whip out all that knowledge. You know, like, okay. uh, like we all have access to this knowledge now. We all know that. We all knew that. But those are, that's a horrible, those are horrible things to say <laughs> at that moment. Anyway, all that to say, it was never... To paraphrase Governor Cuomo, it was never that great. Uh, <laughs> that was a good Cuomo. It's, it's, it's always been really, really, really bad and biased and unfair. Uh, we're seeing all of it in a new, different way 
but it's still just really bad. And I, I know you say you love the media, and part of me does as well. I think I saw that in your mission statement on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I know where you're coming from on that, and I feel the same way because generally speaking, for a long time, I liked most of the people in the media. You know, they were kindred spirits and they were interested in the world. I think they've changed. I haven't, quite frankly. Um, so let me stop talking there. <laughs> no, I, I mean, well, just to your point, like I, I, I do. I, I think that um, there, there's, it's tough. I, I, I think that that I, I love the media in the sense of like I, I really feel that the media, when working properly. Uh, has a job to do. I mean, has a real mission um, to inform the public. I mean, the, you know, the, there are real forces in government, in in elite power circles, in business, and in other places that the media's job is to be that check uh, for you know on behalf of the public. And and when working properly, that's what they do. Uh, Can I ask you though, yeah. what in, what what makes them qualified to do that? What makes Maggie Haberman qualified to do that? She's never worked in government. She is not a lawyer. She has no background in anything she's talking about. And and she's a good reporter, I, I guess. I mean, but to if we really have that power, which I don't think we have, and I don't even think we should have, we tell ourselves we have, like, who are we? What skill set do we have? We, I don't think we do. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess the skill set is, is the, the ability to, in a perfect world, be curious, be uh, skeptical, and, and, uh, and go where the story takes you, you know, be able to, to re- remove, I mean, there, there used to be, um, you know, I remember I was, when I was at CNN, uh, I was there from 2010 to 2013. Um, and I remember, you know, t- the 2012 election, I was as close to, you know, the, the, the executives that were driving the coverage of, of how we were going to cover Obama versus Romney as anyone. And, I didn't vote in 2012. I, I, I felt too close to it. I, I know lots of other people that didn't vote. You know, the goal was you you eliminate any personal feelings you have about anything and you just be this, this you know, you try to be this representative for the public to, to go wherever the story takes you, to be this objective voice. Again, this is sort of the goal. Uh, doesn't I don't think it, it really happens that way. But that's, you know, that's the skill set, I guess, is a curiosity and the ability to to remove your own personal feelings and go where, you know, the story, where the truth is. Well, it's impossible to remove your own feelings. And if you were, uh, you'd be probably producing pretty flat, bad uh, reporting. Mm. And the other thing is, I think that in the end, what we're talking about is almost impossible to do. Uh, You know, policy is hard. Politics is fun. Uh, or easy and dramatic. So what do we do? We focus on uh, the drama, the West Wing uh, intrigue. Right. Who's up? Who's down? You know, I saw MSNBC the other day. They did 40 minutes on on infrastructure. And it was all about some reconciliation. It was all process stuff. It was all process stuff. It was nothing about what's in that bill, what it would mean to people. Nothing. Zero. Uh, it was all about Pelosi's stock, and Mitch McConnell's this and that, and handling AOC. <laughs> so, you know, you you said it's it's a business. It is primarily a business to get people engaged. So, in the meantime, we can keep them watching long enough so that they'll watch a commercial. And how do you do that? And how do you do that as easily as possible and as cheaply as possible? And for Benny, it's 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 focusing on very superficial, silly things, and nobody wants to break a sweat. Uh, I, I know I sound pretty pessimistic, uh, but I guess I am. In it, but I'm still an optimistic guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I <laughs> yeah, and I'm optimistic too. Although I've, I'm less so than I than I was before. But no, to your point, like I I think part of that is the financial model of like a cable news, like like MSNBC doesn't have to appeal to a wide range of, of people. It doesn't have to, you know, it, it, as long as they can kind of keep the lights on by, by really, you know, hyper-focusing to the, uh, you know, to the political hobbyists who, who watch that channel and who that's, that's the, the crack that they, that they like to consume, then they're fine. You know, that, that, that lets them, you know, survive the next, uh, you know, 10 years before everyone stops watching TV. But I actually think there's an interest in how does the infrastructure bill affect you, you know, person in pick anywhere other than the coasts. Like, I, I think that actually 
is a valuable service and also there's actually a business model in it, I would say. You know, um, I remember Soledad O'Brien saying that in a promo. Uh, You may not think this is important, but we're going to tell you how it is important and how it affects you. Now, that sounds great. It also sounded very uh, pedantic and uh, (laughs) uninteresting. (laughs) <laughs> and I just, I, I, I didn't, I didn't think it was interesting. And I, I don't know if you can actually, and I, I, I don't even know if it's knowable, to be honest. I don't know. I just, it's, so what I really went into this business to do was to witness things and to, um, you know, when I first started doing packages, I, I just had an enormous feeling of satisfaction at the end of the day, just that I, wow, I, I provided a snapshot of something and that actually was hard to do, but I did it well. And somebody somewhere is going to see this and get a kick out of it. And it was, it was both authentic and both this and that. And I just, I just love that feeling. I didn't think I was changing the world. I didn't think I was doing anything that was going to, uh, you know, either protect or undermine democracy. It was just giving people, people a snapshot of what's happening. And I think that really is kind of what we're best at. The idea that we are, you know, and so many people, there you go. I was 31 when I made that observation, you know, yeah. today, and I'm actually still okay with that. But there are some who say, no, they want to be a player. They want to influence things. They want to make a life better. If you want to make a life better, don't be a journalist. <laughs> don't be a media. Don't, don't enter the media and don't pretend that's what it's all about. It's not. Coming up, Greg Kelly's Twitter account has blown the minds of the establishment media. We talk fashion, fast food, and more, breaking down his top tweets and his overall use of the medium next. But first, I want to talk about good old Hunter Biden. I'm not sure any single tweet exemplifies the problems with where we are in this moment of censorship collusion between tech, government, and the media than this tweet from Facebook executive Andy Stone on the day the New York Post released their first Hunter Biden laptop story. This is what it said. While I will intentionally not link to the New York Post, I want to be clear that this story is eligible to be fact-checked by Facebook's third-party fact-checking partners. In the meantime, we are reducing its distribution on our platform. He will, quote, intentionally not link to the story. While they are insta-fact-checking it over on Facebook, they will, quote, in the meantime, be reducing its distribution. The New York Post story was suppressed on all platforms and the media outlet that was was completely locked out of its Twitter account. A bunch of former senior intelligence officials like James Clapper and John Brennan, you know, the quote, experts, assessed it to be Russian disinformation and the media reported this entirely uncritically. Rolling Stone dutifully wrote about the vile, baseless conspiracy theories being spread online. As we all know now, this wasn't disinformation or misinformation at all. It was information. So the New York Post tweets again and everyone basically just moves on. Hunter Biden, though, can no longer hold an executive position at a foreign company. So he shifts his career and becomes an artist, a painter, to be exact. And as The Washington Post reports, White House officials have helped craft an agreement under which purchases of Hunter Biden's artwork, which could be listed as high as $500,000, will be kept confidential from even the artist himself in an attempt to avoid ethical issues that could arise as a presidential family member tries to sell a product with a highly subjective value. This arrangement, by the way, was confirmed at the podium by Jen Psaki. But keeping the identity secret, even from the artist himself, also keeps the identity secret from you and me. And that's far more alarming, that someone is spending half a million dollars to buy Hunter's artwork and his dad's White House worked out a deal to prevent the public from finding out who made that purchase. This, it should be noted, while his dad's Justice Department still has an active investigation into Hunter Biden, a point that the media doesn't spend a lot of time covering these days. So is the artwork any... Good. CNN interviewed one critic who dismissed him as a, quote, cafe painter, saying you wouldn't, unless you were related to the artist, spend more than $1,000 on it. Well, someone would. And thanks to the Biden administration, we won't know who that person is. And thanks to this tech suppression back in October and the media compliance and disinterest then and again now, the Hunter Biden suppression continues. More with Greg Kelly coming up, but first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech, big ideas, featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that formed the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. No subscriptions, no credit cards, no trials, no censorship. Watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, back to Greg. 
I do think that there's a valuable service to making people who are, are, you know, are not spending, you know, every waking moment thinking about what's happening in DC and, and making it easy for them, finding a, a little, you know, even if it's fun, I mean, even finding something that's, that's a diversion that entertains, that, you know, informs and, you know, is a, is, is a break from the day to day of life, um, which I have to say, Greg brings me to your Twitter account. Um, <laughs> because I, I, I will say, and I, I don't say this lightly, you are the best person on Twitter. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, part of that is because Donald Trump has been banned uh, by Twitter now. Um, so that, that's an element to this. But I, I want to just tee up our conversation with reading something from May in the Washington Post by one of my, uh, one of the more unintentionally funny uh, writers named Philip Bump, um, uh-huh. who wrote, it's possible that some earnest, clever assistant is ginning up attention for Kelly by posting tweets from an iPhone of her own. But even if that's the case, which there's no real evidence of, Kelly clearly has no problem. I mean, this is a guy who tried to figure out whether you're sending your own tweets. And it came to the conclusion that maybe it's an assistant who's doing it. Uh, Interesting that he assumed that it was a woman. I know. I know. I don't know. That's How that, sexist. <laughs> uh, but I... I, I I have to say, before I get into my my favorite uh, elements, which uh, which I've I've grouped into categories, there there's an element I see of what you do on Twitter drives certain elements of the media crazy, um, and it, and it's so refreshing to see that. Uh, but big picture, how do you see Twitter as part of your overall kind of media? Uh, you know, the things you do. You're at a TV show, you've got a radio show, and you've got a Twitter account. They're all independent of each other. I, number one, the tweets are me. That is me. I am doing it. I do it. Look, I have fun with it. I like saying stuff. I like screwing around. I like jokes. I, you know, I grew up the jerky boys. I was fascinated by those guys. I just, uh, uh, and sometimes I get bored and I feel like lobbing something and see what happens. And, uh, but usually almost always there's, there's, there's truth there. Um, and sometimes I do kind of, yeah, take some liberties, but, uh, so uh, I, I don't treat it as, okay, first of all, you've probably seen this. You can't promote a TV show with a Twitter account. You think people think, people are on Twitter to be on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. In my opinion. It's hard I mean, to do. I can, it's, well, you know, I can say something, you know, interesting or unique or kind of bizarre or whatever, and it can get a thousand comments. I can say, listen to this podcast of mine, and it will get two. <laughs> no, people are there, you know, to read things quickly and then move on they they don't people think it's a uh, it's a good way to uh, promote things i don't think it is to be honest uh people can disagree i'm not a social media expert um so that's 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 for starters that's that i'm not yeah. trying to promote anything i'm trying to amuse myself and every now and then i'm trying to make a point that i can't make elsewhere at the time you know i i, I can't jump on tv i want to say this right now and I want to help shape the conversation. There is a conversation on Twitter. So, and I have fun with it. Uh, yeah. And, and you, I mean, I, you have to know that people are interpreting it in ways that you've driven Philip Bump to think that your female assistant is sending the tweets. I mean, there's something, it has to be satisfying about that. Well, that was a surprise. I did not see that. You know, I found that article on like two days after it came out, which is another odd thing that just <laughs> <laughs> a Washington Post reporter does a profile on your Twitter and you're tweeting and you don't even know about it. <laughs> it, it. It reminds me, and if I could tell you this real quick, you know, it's just interesting that no one actually sits down and does the reading anymore. Um, I, I sat down and read the Mueller report cover to cover and there's a character, there's a person in that, in that Mueller report. I'm like, Oh, I know that guy. I'm going to say, I'm going to mention this to him. Wow. That's interesting. Six months go by and I see this individual at a party. I say, hey, that's so cool. You already had a cameo in the Mueller report. And he gave me the funniest look. And just, I'm like, I'm like, what's wrong? He said, nothing. It's just that you're the only person who has said anything about that. <laughs> and I was just like, like, this is a person in the media. It's another friend of mine who's in a book about uh, Woodward, uh, Woodward's book about uh, Obama. And there's a scene where Obama's having a debate with somebody, and, and this guy's name comes up. And I'm like, I can't believe that. And, you know, whenever I saw him, I'm like, hey, you, that's so wild. Obama is having to talk about you. And he's, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> he had no idea. Anyway, 
I don't know what the point is there. I, I, well, I, I, I would I say like. one of the points is that how much ink was spilled talking about the Mueller report, both, both before but certainly after, and how many people actually read the Mueller report cover to cover? I would say very, very few in the media, despite them spending lots of time talking about it and writing about it. And that's the thing about the media. Like, why go through the media? The media is plural for medium, and a medium is something you have to go through. And when something passes through anything, it's going to be distorted. It's going to be warped. It's not going to come out the same way on the other side. So what I have advocated to my viewers and uh, to, on the radio and here and everywhere is, uh, you know, why go through the middleman? Why not? Why not read the Mueller report? Yeah. Why not read Letitia James's report on Coleman? Now, granted, it's time-consuming, and we'd rather ha have somebody give us the gist. But since we don't trust them like we used to, and we have access to this stuff like never before, you know, we can watch another show on Netflix, or you can be the smartest guy. You can be you could be better informed than most journalists. Yeah, very easily actually. And, and part of it is because we spend so much time on Twitter. I have to say, um, let, <laughs> let me let me tell you my three favorite. Uh, categories of your tweets. Um, they all fit. There are F's, the three F's facial expressions, which I, I have to say, you, I want to talk more about observation because I think that you are one of the best observers of life. Um, but I, I don't think that, you know, people spend so much time, someone, Joe Biden says a quote and literally 30 reporters just tweet it out. It's like, Hey, here's a quote, but, but no one actually spends the time to like, to, to sort of dig in. I think that that's, that's a great one. And I can talk more about it. Uh, fashion though, fashion and the last one's fast food fashion so the, the one of i think the best tweets you've ever had you said everyone busting my crackers over the pants the truth is they're i don't even know how you pronounce this balmain the most prestigious Balmain, yeah most pre prestigious brand in pants shoes are ferragamo you're a sharp dressed man this is the picture you had um with trump uh <laughs> I, you, you you do i mean you tweet a lot about fashion and i think it's it's fantastic so there's always a bit of a backstory uh, to all these things. I don't. So um, I was intrigued by the pants. <laughs> you know what I mean? I put that picture up with Trump, and uh, and yes, those are Bugle Boy jeans I'm wearing. Haha, right? Like I, that was the first thing I I liked that joke. I liked, and I planned on saying that. Yeah. And then I kind of wanted to. I want. I want. It wasn't that people were busting my crackers. I wanted to highlight the pants. I also wanted to de-emphasize that I was wearing the pants at the Trump Club because you're not supposed to wear those kinds of pants at the Trump Club. <laughs> you're just not. I okay. wanted to change the subject a little bit. And also the word pants is a funny word. <laughs> um, you know, David Letterman's production company, I think, is called Worldwide Pants. Yeah. And I've never met David Letterman, but I have a feeling he has the same feeling about the word pants. And... Uh, it's just it's 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 funny, and uh, so I, I I changed I wanted to change the subject. I really, quite frankly, wanted to get it off Trump and the fact that I was wearing those trousers there. <laughs> <laughs> Got to say trousers because I'll I'll laugh otherwise. And um, and you know I'm proud of the the. I'll tell you this. You know you notice that I uppercase and quotes and stuff like that. Yeah, pants was in quotes in one time in one reference, and then up and then all caps in the second reference right. in that. Tweet. I should tell you all, all the secrets here, but I mean one of the reasons why I do that is number one, it gets for emphasis. Truly, just like that's the way I feel emotionally. But when you look at a tweet, it is more appetizing to read if it's interesting to look at. Right. If that were a paragraph, you would be less inclined to read it. But since you're going on a little bit of a visual adventure, it brings you in a little bit, whether whether it's uh, consciously or subconsciously. So it's really for the delight of the eye, believe it or not. That's my that's my theory. That's what uh, that's 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 where I'm coming from. I, that I, makes I, sense. I, it makes total sense. And you know, it's funny. People always talk about because I do think there's. There is a, a a little Trumpy quality, I think, to to the tweets. But I, I remember reading a Boston Globe story uh, a few years ago that that said I mean, they have people on the record, uh, not on the record. They were anonymous, but they were you know on people in the know that that President Trump would would purposely misspell things just to sort of kind of irk the media. And and I mean purposely. And, and obviously, you know, he also does the caps and the quotes. I, I think it's totally true. I, I think that there, there, the idea that there's the humorless 
you know, people on Twitter uh, don't really get the the, the connection. But I, I think that there's a there's a very real thing at play there. So I've never purposely misspelled something, and misspellings come. You know, everybody misspells words from time, and even visually, you think you spelled it right, but you spell it wrong. Yeah. But I will, generally speaking, leave a spelling error up, uh, even if I notice it right away, uh, because it does suggest what it actually is. That is an authentic tweet that came from the heart. Uh, my producer, Damon Plotnick, you know, always making that face again, you know, that tweet face. It, there's actually, you know what I mean? Like he's emotional, he's angry, he's doing something, he's, he's smiling like, I haven't, I haven't vetted this by 50 people. You know what right. I mean? This no, no, a, exactly. Right. We didn't put up on a whiteboard and make sure. So there's an authentic, uh, there's an authentic quality to these tweets because they are authentic. And when people speak authentically, they are going to misspell words. They are going to make grammatical mistakes. They're just going, and it's real. And that trumps, totally trumps the perfectly crafted uh, sentence worthy of a, uh, of a book or a newspaper article. It's right. not that that's what people don't understand it. Uh, yeah. It's, it's authentic. Yeah, no. And, and that brings me to my last category before we get to something else. Last thing on Twitter, my favorite category of yours is the fast food tweets. Um, and I have to read my favorite one of all time. Going to Burger King used to be quote fun back in the day. I might even plan my whole Saturday around a visit to the BK, but look at it now has all the charm of a cell phone kiosk at the mall. Not saying I need to meet the King himself, but something. <laughs> it's amazing. They got another one where what? you were called a male Karen at McDonald's for demanding a McFish and not, and then not having it. And people, I mean, I, I just want to say like there, there were m multiple articles written about these tweets, articles in Buzzfeed. And in, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Well, it's kind of, yeah, it's fun. It's just fun. It's just, I mean, it's fun. It's fun. <laughs> and, uh, it's interesting. And I, I've been in those scenarios. I, I don't want to say too much about the substance of those tweets. I do will say this: making making a day out of it. Still, uh, the, the idea of make, making a day out of it at a restaurant is something that just still makes me chuckle and smile. I was with my dad in a cafe in Brooklyn, maybe fifteen years ago, and there was a family in the corner. And they had a baby, and you know they guess <laughs> we were eating and running. And so I. My dad said, boy, they're really making a day out of it over there. <laughs> just, it just seems so, the idea of making a day out of it. And uh, I could see a kid, you know, really, he used to get really excited about going to uh, McDonald's. Totally. You know? I, yeah, it was a big treat. I, I, I it's true. I mean, absolutely. There would be, as a kid, you know, you talk about like that is, you know, you, how nice it must have been to have a schedule that was like, all right, at this time we're going to McDonald's, but beyond that, I don't, I don't really know the rest of the day. Uh, it was amazing. Uh, uh, so the Burger King one was very, very, uh, very, very much from the heart. The, the, the McDonald's one, I took a little love. The fourth watch lightning round is coming up, but first, what does it take to make it in the media business? Before we get to the, the, the final bit here, I want to ask you uh, about, I listened to your podcast recently with Chris Matthews. I, th I thought it was really mm. an interesting one. And you talk about his presence. And again, we talked about this a little bit, um, you, but you're someone who really has given thought, I think, to the industry and to, to what works and, and chemistry and things that are sort of intangible. Um, and, and you did with, with Chris Matthews as well, talking about why he was successful at MSNBC and for his whole career, you know, the, the elements of it. Um, and I wonder if you think that there, there's something that you can, you know, it, it, you clearly have given it thought. What is it about kind of the the media, you know, persona, the 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 presence that it takes to have a long lasting career in in the space? There are, um, well, there are a lot of ways uh, to have a long lasting career. Um, so I won't go through all the. What I think is really key is, and you work closely with Megyn Kelly, to bring something from the outs from the real world to media. She brought her legal experience. She brought a decade of life on the uh, in the real world. Um, I brought my military experience. Um, I still feel kind of new to the media culture. That to me uh, was very very helpful, and also studying and evolving, studying and evolving and pushing yourself. I spent nine years as a morning talk show host locally here in New York. 
it was a big audience, but also small enough, you know, uh, but media, they, they were too busy watching Morning Joe. They weren't scrutinizing me and, they, you know, <laughs> yeah. so I could, I could experiment. And you I and did. Rosanna Scott were a great, a great team chemistry wise, I would say it for sure. Yeah, totally. So I really worked at it and I was evolving and I was, you know, experimenting what works, what doesn't. And, and I had the latitude and the freedom and the more or less anonymity to do that. So for me, working, 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 and evolving and changing. Now, what I, I do notice is a lot of folks in the media, they stop growing. Um, and it's, it's kind of strange to see. Uh, what's an example? I won't name names, but there are people at MSNBC and many people in media. It's all about what they look like. You know, that's what they think it is. And it's not necessarily how the audience reacts to them. It's not what the audience, whether the audience thinks they're good looking or not. Because the audience really doesn't care. The audience, you know, either likes you or they don't. Or right. There are a lot of other intangibles. But looks and physical presentation actually matter a lot behind the scenes with executives. Anyway, uh, what I've noticed is a lot of people sit there on TV. They love the feeling of being on TV. And... Um, they're happy to read the prompter and see what I did. I, I stopped reading from the teleprompter like, I don't know, 15 years ago. I was, I, I just, uh, this is a convoluted answer. I guess what I'm trying to say is I've noticed that a lot of folks on air are content to be on air. They will fill the template designed by somebody else. They try to shine during the interview portion. Yeah. Right. Because that's their, you can come up with the questions. That's where they let, you know, it's, that's why their questions go on and on and on. That's why they don't listen to the answers. That's why they, uh, I don't know. So look, I'm all over the place, obviously there. I think the, uh, the key to it is evolving. You know, look, I mean, I've reinvented myself a couple of times. Yeah. I was not, I was not, somebody said, Bob Pittman who runs iHeartMedia, that if you look at a show that you did five years ago, it should make you cringe. Hmm. Should, you know, because your, your style is so different because you've moved on because you've you know, taken steps forward. So I've always tried to do that. And, uh, that's helped. Now there are guys who can stand around and just look magnificent. Although that let's face it, I was going to say Brian Williams, but he's not, you know, he's not where he was No. Uh, no. and, and who knows how much longer Lester Holt's going to be around. And, uh, so there's something real. Know. No, I, I think I totally, I mean, it, it, if it, you can, yeah, as you, as you said, you can look pretty, you can read from the prompter. If it doesn't feel real, it's, it's not going to make an impact. It doesn't seem. And like. reading from the prompter is inherently a dishonest thing. It's inherently dishonest. Yeah. You're, you're, you're pretending that you're something that you're not. And there's also something about reading when you're, that's a, reading is internalizing information. It's not emoting. It's not putting information out. So you're actually shutting off something physiologically, I believe, when you're reading in front of people. Mm. It's still, it's, that's still meant to take in, not to put out. Anyway, have I, I haven't verified any of this stuff in the laboratory, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's just... Uh, it all makes sense to me. I, 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 all right, last thing before we get to it, I would be remiss. It would not, I would not be doing my journalistic due diligence if I didn't ask you about the project, which I know is a secret because I see it on Twitter. Is there anything you can tell us about the project coming in September or beyond? Uh, all right, here's the secret. There's no project. <laughs> what? There's no, no, I, I got nothing. Got any ideas? <laughs> I got nothing. I no, I actually, I am working I on something. I am, I am working on something. Um, I'm going to buy a new pair of sneakers. <laughs> Most expensive a pair of sneakers. No, no, no. I, it's, it's a little Paragama. something I'm doing uh, close. But the thing about Twitter is that's beautiful. You know, you can change your mind. <laughs> you, know I mean? you can, you can. It's like I put out that statement. I'm, I'm off Twitter for four months. Right. Remember? Yeah, oh, yeah I remember. I, 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 I really wanted to do that. Obviously, with a statement like that, you know, like, wow, it's like the point of no return. I'm like, you know, screw it. I changed my mind. The the the, the statement is inoperative. I'm back <laughs> four days later. So, uh, but I do have something in mind. Uh, quite frankly, uh, it's a tough one. It is a really, it's a really tough one. It's not going to be like a new show or anything like that. It's going to be a surprise. I think it's going to be, it's going to be interesting and, and, uh, we'll see. All right. 
Well, look out for that. Last thing, six questions in 60 seconds. Where were you born? Uh, Manhattan, New York on Long Island. You're a host on Newsmax and WABC. What's one benefit and one cost of those jobs? The immediate thing that comes to mind is uh, there's, uh, in all honesty, there's a lot of uh, free junk food all over the place. And that's the big, that's the big cost okay. of both jobs. Seriously, I, I have free M&Ms everywhere. Uh, and the benefit, the benefit, I have wonderful employers and I'm able to be my authentic self with the audience. Excellent. Who's one, who is someone who's been a mentor for you? You'd be surprised. I got about two or three, four maybe. Uh, Roger Ailes, Oliver North, Geraldo Rivera, Howard Stern. Great ones. Who is one person that you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? That's a great question. RuPaul. Okay. Who's one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? The first name that comes to mind is uh, Pete Williams, NBC News Justice Correspondent. But I don't think he... Uh, he's probably getting the amount of attention that he wants and needs. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that in case he's overlooked. He's just a, a solid reporter who spends time in uh, in government. He worked at the Pentagon under uh, uh, Dick Cheney when he was Defense Secretary. So I, I like him. Whether or not he should get more attention, you know, he's he's got a pretty good spot right now. But that that uh, comes to mind. I may think of another one in a moment. But keep going. I like it. This is fun. Last one. One year from today, what is one prediction for the media? Oh, one year from today, one prediction. Uh, CNN ceases to exist. Ooh, like it. Greg, thank you so much for your time. This was fantastic. Uh, thank you, Steve. Thanks so much to Greg Kelly. Greg Kelly USA on Twitter. Go there. It's the best. Remember, Fourth Watch is not just a podcast. It's also a newsletter. You can subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in the show as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music and download this podcast and subscribe and follow, rate, review, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. This was produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. Next episode with Erica Nardini, CEO of Barstool Sports. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.